0: A science story, huh?
1: Is NYU a scientist? Uh, I, it I felt it. Right. So and I just happy. thought, well, I figured it out. Wow. It was so that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
0: everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Richard Pollock. The story was recorded in August 2013 at Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as part of a partnership with WBUR. The theme of the evening was Small Things.
1: It was a very early, quiet Sunday morning some two decades ago in Boston. I was a postdoc in the laboratory of the late Andy Spielman at the Harvard School of Public Health. We studied things like mosquitoes and ticks and lice and the things that they transmitted. Well joining us that early morning were two scientists, one each from Jordan and Israel. They were sent on a mission by their respective governments, a very odd mission, uh, that being one of scientific diplomacy. Why had they come? Well. Uh, House flies had become a tremendous problem. This was a shared common enemy throughout the region. They had become incredibly abundant on both sides of the Dead Sea. Uh, it was likened to be akin to a a, um, a latter-day plague of b- biblical proportions. Well, how bad really could a few houseflies be? Well, let me paint you a mental picture. This comes from experience. Uh, on the Israeli side of the border during fly season, uh, there are resorts lining uh, that that uh, border, and uh, at check-in at these resorts, you'd be handed by the the desk clerk, would hand you a key, uh, a postcard to the hotel, and sometimes a fly swatter. If you were silly enough to walk outside with a cup of tea, within seconds, the first housefly would dive bomb into your beverage. This would be followed almost immediately by a hailstorm of others, uh, with the result of a crust of flies forming on the surface. If you were still outside after a few minutes, your arm would be wet because the fly bodies were displacing the liquid within your, your tea. Well, as you might imagine, uh, this distressed a lot of people. And uh, they complained. They complained to the hotel managers as if they were somehow responsible for the problem and could do something about it. Well, this, this made everybody angry. Uh, it ate into profits. A lot of rooms uh, were left vacant uh, during the season. Uh, Well, the complaints were heard. They were heard all the way up to Jerusalem and then, amazingly, uh, to Washington, D.C. Well, now, for every housefly that that, uh, you might encounter in Israel, there were impossibly more in Jordan. How bad were they? Well, again, if you walk outside, uh, trying to converse was a very dangerous act. Uh, Simply opening your mouth uh, was the opportunity for one or several flies to find an opening. So it wasn't unusual to see uh, folks spitting, gasping, coughing, and then running uh, inside to get away from the flies. Well, in Jordan, there were very few, many fewer people that were complaining about the problem, but there was one particularly influential one. Uh, We were told that Queen Noor was displeased with the flies, and uh, she asked or instructed her husband uh, to do something, to fix this. Well, he asked around and then uh, contacted some folks in Washington, D.C. to complain as well. Okay, so fast forward uh, a little bit. Well, actually, before that, uh, so where... What would account for all of these flies? Uh, why had they become so abundant? Uh, once on the wing, where did they go? How far did they travel? Uh, what directed them? Uh, how did they navigate? These are all questions that excite and engage the scientist. Uh, everyone else, though, wanted just some sort of solution to the problem, of course. Well, before we could come up with a solution, we had to understand all, uh, the answers to all of those questions that I just mentioned. So this is the reason for this meeting, uh, this, this, this secret and, and, uh, very quiet meeting. Except it wasn't so quiet. Uh, the two scientists joining that, us that day were incredibly distrusting of each other. Uh, you know, remember this is there was no peace accord uh, between these two countries. They were enemies of each other, and but they were there because they were they were on this this uh, sanctioned mission. Uh, they were arguing with each other. They were incredibly disagreeable. They could only agree to to disagree, and this just went on. We were to stalemate. So. At one point, our Israeli colleague repeated the party line, that the Jordanians were somehow growing billions and billions of houseflies and <laughs> programming these things to fly across the border to create a pestilence across the land in Israel. Well, our Jordanian colleague was incensed by this allegation, or so he made it seem. And uh, he allowed that some of these flies might indeed come from Jordan. But he wondered, why would a perfectly happy and healthy Jordanian housefly want to go to Israel in the first place? <laughs> well, Andy and I didn't know whether to laugh or proclaim failure on the spot. No, as this discussion was going on, it was incredibly heated. Uh, as you might imagine, we had this small square table. Where the four of us were sitting around. And every time either the Israeli or the Jordanian uh, fellow... Uh, made a statement, they pounded on that table. And with every pound of the table, and there were many, that table wobbled, wobbled excessively in in, in a distracting manner. In unison, these two fellows turned to us and asked, why do you have such a crummy table? Can't you afford something better? And then the worst, uh, is, is this somehow a reflection of the quality of Harvard science? <laughs> well, as Andy and I were trying to conjure up some sort of apology, we see the two of them under the table, eye to eye. One of them's lifting the table, the other's shoving a wedge of paper underneath the short leg to steady this, this rocking ship of, of uh, this problem that we had. Well, success Scientific collaboration and cooperation. It was amazing. It was our, our very first success. But would it be our last? Well, time would tell. Well, actually, this was wonderful. This rebooted uh, the conversation. We went on for hours to discuss scientific uh, issues and, and so forth at the end of, of the, the evening. And we didn't even want to break for lunch or for dinner. Uh, but at the end of this time, we, we had a, a draft document that we turned into a proposal for USI, USAID. Uh, that was soon submitted. USAID took the bait, funded uh, several years of field work for us. Uh, so that was success number two. Now, armed with the money, we traveled to the Middle East to this, this fly-plagued and politically-charged border. At every stop we went to, uh, folks came out to welcome us with open arms. Well, their arms were out like this, but I think they were actually doing a lot of uh, this to swat the flies out of the way. And and they they expressed their wishes for us and their expectations that we would solve their problem. Okay. Um, The flies also greeted us, and in even much greater numbers. And I think the flies were laughing at us uh, that we had this notion that we could somehow figure out a way to stem this tide. Well, we, we saw all these flies, we looked at them, we couldn't tell from where they came. Uh, they, weren't wearing, they, they weren't waving Israeli or Jordanian flags, they weren't wearing yarmulkes or kafiyas. uh, and they, we couldn't tell if they were buzzing in Hebrew or Arabic. <laughs> so we had this problem, we needed to find out where they were. So we went on a hunt. Uh, we, we visited sites in Jordan and in Israel, and we very quickly found major fly factories. In Jordan, there were f- nascent fields of peppers and other vegetables as far as the eye could see. In each field, there are these dense arrays of plastic irrigation hoses, and over each hose for the entire length, they're gone f- forever, uh, is a layer of dried chicken manure. Now, tri- chicken manure is a very uh, readily available and inexpensive fertilizer. It's also, once it becomes wet, an incredible fly um, rearing medium. Uh, it's just amazing numbers of flies were produced. Uh, with every handful of that compost that we examined, on average there were 500 flies developing at any spot. It's a, it's a tremendous number of flies. That translates, for an area the size of this room, about three and a half pounds of flies for each one of you here tonight. And that's, you know, that, that's constantly going on through, the, through the, uh, the, the, uh, the crop growing season. Okay, so, all right, in Israel, there were flies in, uh, produced in mass as well. But in this case, it was from the agricultural success and excess. Vegetables were so plentiful that any imperfect fruit, uh, had very little resale value. These were just tossed aside in these, these ever-growing pyramids of fruit left to, and, and vegetables left to rot in the sun with the help of millions and millions of houseflies. All right, so with this, there was a realization from both sides that they they each were at fault at producing massive numbers of flies. This helped tone down the rhetoric a a bit. So another bit of success for this international effort. All right, so we knew where many of these flies were coming from. The next questions were, well, where do they go? How far do they go? Can we track their movements? Well, so we, we then embarked on a study uh, to do that uh, We set out arrays of traps um, and each trap could catch 50,000 sixty thousand 60, flies or so uh, and each one was baited with the most god-awful swill this this Uh, Now how do you attract uh, flies? Uh, With honey, of course. So this had uh, sugar, water, yeast, and rotting fly bodies. And no matter how careful we were to carefully decant this swill into each of the traps, it would invariably slosh all over us. Uh, No amount of soap and water could wash this stuff out. In fact, I think I can still smell it to this day. All right, So we could catch lots and lots of flies. Uh, once we had them, we would actually paint them by the millions with fluorescent dyes and then do the unimaginable. We'd release them. These m- massive clouds of flies would take to the air. Okay, then we would... Activate an array of traps. Our Israeli and Jordanian colleagues would, would start monitoring their traps on each side at various distances every 30 minutes or so thereafter uh, so that we could track this moving wave of flies. This was another bit of success because the only way to accomplish this is with really close scientific uh, cooperation and collaboration. So this is absolutely wonderful. So, what was the upshot of all of this? Well, many of these flies, many of the Jordanian flies, seem to seek asylum in Israel. And many Israeli flies must have thought the grass was greener over in Jordan. Uh, what made them go in either direction and, and, and such distances, uh, many of these flies went tens of, of kilometers in just a few hours. Uh, but if any of you have ideas on how to fund yet more work, please come up and let me know afterwards. <laughs> Okay, now this kind of work would be difficult enough to accomplish here in New England, but we were in the Dead Sea area. It was incredibly hot in the shade, and there was no shade at all. Uh, We also had to watch where we stepped. There were minefields all around us, or at least that's what the signs said, and we weren't about to question those. Uh, To make matters worse, our our Jordanian colleagues and their families uh, were uh, accused of uh, cooperating with the enemy. Um, the Israelis. Uh, this simply redoubled everybody's efforts to work cooperatively and, and towards a common goal, that being to prove the other guy wrong. So, um, okay, uh, what did, what else did we learn from all of this? Uh, other than uh, the flies traveled very far and, and uh, invaded other countries. Um, the, beyond the scientific uh this discoveries there were many uh the the, the level of cooperation was absolutely amazing uh our colleagues from israel and jordan would call each other uh this is before the peace accord was signed uh they would speak about things other than flies when once the once peace broke out in the region the families from each side visited each other they attended weddings and other social occasions they were best of friends uh for many many years thereafter uh from USAID's perspective, they didn't really care that much about the science. It was the cooperation, the talking, which was uh, really the goal from their perspective. And this was a huge uh, win for them. Now, from my perspective, I I learned a lot as well. Um, uh, I learned not to get so stressed out uh, when the best ideas, uh, these interventions that we Uh, came up with were not readily embraced by uh, the farmers and the local officials, but that happens. Uh, Change in the Middle East takes uh, generations, that's generations of people, not flies. I also learned to keep my mouth closed, uh, particularly during fly season. Um, But that helps in many ways, it helps with the listening and thought processes. Most importantly, I learned to embrace wobbly tables. The smallest distractions can sometimes lead to the most profound discoveries. So I wish you all a very good conversation around wobbly tables. Thank you very much for listening.
0: That was Richard Pollock. Richard is a public health entomologist serving academia, including Harvard School of Public Health and Boston University, as well as government service. He also operates the consulting venture Identify Us. He has traveled the globe to study, teach about, and guide policy issues relevant to pests such as mosquitoes, lice, ticks, bedbugs, and the microbes they transmit. When not in the lab or the field, he often is embroiled in efforts to base policy decisions on evidence rather than folklore and fear. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where you have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon for hosting the show, to WBUR for being a wonderful media sponsor, and to Wobbly Tables. You know who you are. Thanks for listening.